0: Her many voices, Her many voices, Her many voices, Her many voices.
1: Hello, everyone, greetings, and welcome to another Her Many Voices Lunch and Learn. We're so happy to have with us this time Ishwari Maranwe. How'd I do? You did pretty well. That was
2: awesome. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yes, absolutely. We're so happy to have you here. Um, So if you would, just can you introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. So,
2: hi. Um, I'm so happy to be here. I am the CEO of the DG Sentinel, which is one of the things I'm happy to talk about today. I'm also the president of Tweeps Global. They're both nonprofits that focus on free mentorship, uplifting marginalized voices worldwide. Just basically providing a community for people who need it. And um, you know, I have a background as an attorney, and before that, I was uh, in—I was a writer. I've been in physics. I've done a whole bunch of different things in my life. I. Most, I guess, notably was in national security and cybersecurity as an attorney after law school, worked for the government, the private sector, Uh, learned a lot of things I want to continue doing and not do. Um, And then switched into the nonprofit space, which I think is, uh, has been a lot more purposeful for me and just exciting
1: and fun. And yeah, that's me. That's amazing. Thank you. Your background is so varied. I love how we're going to learn here in the next hour, how it all kind of ties into who you are today, you know?
2: yeah yeah i'm really excited
1: to talk about everything so um one thing i wanted to ask you is about you know Harmony voices is very much about indigenous culture and about who we essentially are as humans and that we are all connected and in this world together right um and i'd love to hear a little bit about your heritage
2: yeah so I am ethnically Indian. i uh, my parents are from India. They're actually from different parts of India, and it's very interesting seeing how, like today's conversations about race in the United States play out in other countries, just mm. a whole can of worms. But, um, yeah, so i'm I'm Indian. My parents immigrated from India before I was born. I do have sort of overseas citizenship of India in addition to being born in the United States and being a citizen. here, spent a lot of time in India growing up, Bangalore specifically.
1: So, yeah. That's great. I've been to India a few times. I love it. The culture is so deep and rich. You know, it's just, uh, there's an essence of it that's really rare, I think.
0: Um, oh, so, awesome.
1: <laughs> so, I'd love to actually dip a little into something you just mentioned that how the race issues in the US are actually affecting people in India.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. So, basically, in the United States, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of racism and colorism that is, that comes from a, a sort of country of immigrants because people have moved here from around the world and every wave of immigrants has faced discrimination as they come in. But then there's also the way that black people are treated, which I think is, you know, very unique because there's a legacy of like, sort of the legacy of slavery is a uniquely black issue. There are ways in which black people have been treated in the United States that are uh, very bad and a lot worse than immigrants have faced. And a lot of what's happened in the United States is we've started to talk about this finally, I think, in the last few years, and about how we need to all be anti-black, we need to be anti-colorist, we need to be anti-discrimination more broadly, we need to work on all these issues. And that conversation has been taken global, even in contexts where um, it's a very different, it's sort of a very different uh, background. So I'll give you a couple examples in, in India. One of the good ways in which I think the race conversation is playing out in India is that people are realizing that you can be colorist, right? So a lot of the discrimination in India, especially when I was growing up, was more traditionally along religious lines, right? So everybody kind of looks the same, but Hindus disliked Muslims and there was a lot of religious violence. But as, um, but we often ignored colorism. Like I grew up hearing all the time that darker skinned people were uglier with a lot of like fair and beauty creams. Like I was very grateful that my parents did not subscribe to all of this, but definitely things that I heard from my extended family from, you know, yeah, uh, you know, I have curly hair, I have darker skin, I have a larger nose. These things were very, were seen as very bad. And I think because of the fight for racial equality in the beauty industry and just like stop calling dark-skinned ugly stop calling people who look different ugly that's sort of that sort of movement that I think came from the anti-colorism fight anti-colorism fight in the United States has been good for India because now there's a lot of people talking about how um it is racist and colorist if not racist right because I suppose in one way all people people are seen as in the same race in India um it's bad right like it's it's bad and and we should stop selling fair beauty, lovely creams, we should stop looking at North Indians as inherently more beautiful than South Indians and things like that. So I think that's a good thing. Um, Other things have been been mixed. So there's a lot of conversation in the United States about, right, like, obviously there is a lot that needs to be done to make reparations for slavery, which is a uniquely uh, bad problem. But a lot of that conversation has been taken to India to mean like, okay, we need reparations for the fact that there was Mughal colonial rule. And that has resulted in a lot of sectarian violence and a lot of violence against Muslims that isn't healthy. So, you know, I think, yeah, I just find it fascinating uh, how race and religious tensions are playing out in both countries.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, Speaking of, um, and I know that it's like so embedded in the culture in some ways that the colorism and the, the darker is not as good as a lighter color. We uh, featured a woman named Francoise Mambizi on our show a few months ago. Her organization is MySkinGlobal.org. Um, and she is against, of course, skin bleaching, right? Which is literally harmful to the human body, of course. But it, it boils down to these issues and the cultures in which we grow up in, right? It's yeah. really yeah. And that forms our actual belief systems. Yeah, no, yeah. entirely. I completely agree with that. And it's,
2: it, it definitely happens worldwide and it, it has to change. Actually, I think there was recently a study that said that India was one of the most colorist places, i would say racist colorist places in that way. Yeah. And there's yeah. definitely a lot of anti-Blackness.
1: Yeah. And I know, I mean, if, could you speak to the caste system? I mean, I think people know a little bit more that India is one of the places where it's when you're born into a certain caste or a certain social structure, that it's more difficult, I would say, to escape from that maybe than other countries? Can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of that has
2: changed lately in India. Actually, this is one, ironically one of the things that has not sort of gone backwards despite a rise in conservatism. I think that the caste system is continually moving forward and progressing in terms of the way it's getting demolished. I'm not actually sure that caste and color were ever that closely aligned because caste was so based on the jobs people were doing and then their descendants, regardless of how they looked. So you really weren't going to be able to on on, in sort of on the bad side, right? You weren't going to be able to buy your way out of the caste system by being born with lighter skin or being able to like being able to white pass was less of a thing that would give you a benefit within the caste system in India, even when the caste system was in full force. Honestly, where, where I grew up in, in South India, right? Like a lot of the higher caste people, Brahmins, et cetera, are still some of the darker skinned folks, the still associated with not necessarily looking pretty, but being smarter or being more educated. And so caste works in insidious ways. It isn't really a one-to-one comparison with race, but I do think there's been a lot of progress lately to, to demolish the caste system. Um, there are a lot of programs in universities and in education places that reserve seats for people who are of traditionally lower um, lower caste backgrounds, um, as well as tribal backgrounds in India, so that there is more equality moving forward. And I think a lot of people are moving away from that. One of the places I think it's still very powerful is in marriage. So when you get married outside of your caste or outside of your race, or when, when I say race, even outside of your state, you know, people who speak different languages, people who come from different parts of India, because each state in India really has its own language, its own tradition, its own culture food. Uh, That's still a challenge. Um, But I think, you know, there's a lot of progress being made, especially in big cities. People don't generally share their caste. They don't generally care about caste.
1: That's great. That's good to hear. Um, So historically, it was more of a socioeconomic uh, situation. And and I know there was a lot of discrimination for some people then, but it's getting better. So that's good. Um, Yeah. One example of how that's getting better is a book that was published a year or two ago called No Longer Untouchable, um, written by Sarah Davison Tracy, and it's the story of Hannah Bodhi And she grew up with the, the surname of Bodhi which was a lower caste name. Um, and it's her story of saving her sisters from sexual slavery, literally, and opening a school in Kathmandu. This was actually in Nepal. Opening a school in Kathmandu, um, for girls. And I think they have 300 girls there in school now. Oh, wow. Um, That seems really great. It's really uh, an amazing, very inspiring story. Yeah. Um, So um, how did you get from, um, well, I'm so obsessed with your uh, background as an ex-physicist and also a cybersecurity attorney. Um, Share more about your story, maybe kind of back then, what was, what were you doing? And then of course, we'll talk about where you're going now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, What was it? So um, when I was young, I was very uh, good at sort of math and science. And so it was a natural extension of that, that I ended up pursuing those careers and fields while I was still in school, in high school and college. Um, I had the privilege and great opportunity to be able to participate in a lot of research and a lot of basically work opportunities. Um, I spent the last year of my high school, basically working at at CERN and working in physics and researching in physics. And then when I went to college, I spent a lot of time researching in supernova cosmology as well. I transitioned out of physics because I felt that I was not really making an impact on the world. So I felt guilty. I, just, I greatly enjoyed it. I still enjoy it. In fact, I think in a perfect world, I would have stayed in, in, in that field. But I just felt like, you know, things bad things were happening in the world and I wasn't able to impact it by being in physics right like mm-hmm. all this is great and all but people are dying and so that's sort of why I transitioned into a legal career and then beyond that as well um, but yeah it was a really exciting time I loved being in physics I loved what I did I think there's been so many new uh, advancements lately in every single field that I feel bad I can't like just dig into and and, <laughs> on and all of that but
1: yeah it's a lot of fun What do you think of the James Webb Space Telescope and all the everything we're learning from it? It's only been up for a year and a few. Yeah, it's really cool. You know,
2: I actually what I really love about the James Webb Telescope and what I really like in general about things that hit the pop science market is I think they really spur an interest in these fields for a bunch of younger students and kids who may not otherwise have the opportunity to understand why these things are cool because every decade we progress in science it takes an additional you know one to two years of learning at least post higher education to get to the point where you know enough to actually impact where the field is so these days students are learning in high school right what experts would not have been able to know a hundred years ago and so if you have to you get a PhD before you're really able to discover anything new. And so what I love about like the James Webb telescope is I think it really, really hit the public market for some reason. And it has inspired, I hope a whole new generation of people to pursue, um, you know, uh, an interest in whether it's supernova cosmology, cosmology, more broadly, studying stars, studying planets, whatever it is that it inspires in people. Um, I'm really excited for that.
1: Okay, so since you know about this, I want to go a little bit deeper in this topic. Okay, <laughs> hopefully you'll enjoy that because you were saying you know you kind of miss it. Um, I mean, it's it's such a vast universe, right? And we are um, learning as we look out how uh, w- you know we as humanity are kind of minuscule, but we're still important, right? Um, I love and I love the idea that we are literally made of stardust. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of really cool uh,
2: metaphors to be had from, um, yeah, from looking at space and observing space. I will say one of the things about humanity being minuscule, right? I really like. Uh, I'm. I'm. So the William Shatner went into space, right? So he played James Kirk on on Star Trek, and he no. went in. To space, and after he went into space and came back, he went to space because a rich guy paid for him to fly. I don't remember the details. And when he came back, he commented that you know you I'm totally paraphrasing here, and his quote is far more beautiful. But he basically said something like you know I spent a career portraying somebody who goes out and explores the rest of the universe, and there's so many things to see, and there's so many planets and stars and things to do. But when I actually went to space, I realized how unique the earth is and how fragile it is. And the fact that there really isn't anything out there. Um, and you know, we're here and we're people and we have, uh, you know, people and animals have very, very unique experiences in terms of just neurologically, biologically, we're capable of feeling happiness, pain, creating community, and that is very rare. And the more that I think I have studied, uh, like just space in general, this is not my field, by the way, at all, but I'm interested in it. Um, but, you know, the more that I've studied statistics about how many people have explored different parts of the universe looking for life and looking for life forms, I think what we have is actually really unique. So I I think the study of space for me anyway has made us seem less minuscule and far more important to me. I know that a lot of people study space and come to the opposite conclusion. But for me, it's actually just driven home the point that, you know, there's no place like earth or whatever whatever right
1: right yeah yeah um i remember being at the national space symposium like 10 i don't know 15 years ago and learning that through the space telescopes we will be able to find out if there's other planets like ours right That the right solar system and and it's called the goldilocks planet the goldilocks zone it's just right it's not too hot and not too cold really and um And this, but the extent to which the James Webb Space Telescope is going to enable that is just completely orders of magnitude more profound. Um, So it's it's really going to be interesting to see um, because it's very possible that there are other planets like Earth out there
2: yeah yeah i mean just total sidetrack but uh, i also absolutely love music and there is this guy called acapella science who does science uh videos on youtube where he sings everything acapella because he's also a great singer but basically he does parodies of popular music about different topics and he really delves into them he's awesome and everyone should check him out but he did want an exoplanetology um to the soundtrack from aladdin and it's great and if you want to like learn just like a basic amount of exoplanetology that is an amazing song and a lot of fun and like seven minutes. So highly recommend.
1: I love that you mentioned that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's an awesome nugget there. I wrote it down. (laughs) Great. Well, let's fast forward then to where you are now. And I would love for you to share a little bit about DG sentinel.org and, um, what your plan to do and, um, that kind of thing. I know you're launching February 21st. Yeah. Yeah. So we were,
2: yeah, we're heading, sorry, I didn't, mean to hear that. but yeah, we're heading into a beta launch. Um, super excited, very stressful. Um, it's going to sort of come out in different waves. We're exploring different ways to create community, but we're really excited to get our stories and our articles out there. We tell personal stories from people around the world, uplifting stories that are traditionally not heard in, in media. And, you know, I think in some ways we are primarily a media org in that we are telling stories. We are finding, sourcing stories from around the world, helping people get their voice out and tell it beautifully and focusing on things that are often forgotten in the west so not focusing on american news or news from the uk as much and then we're also creating a really awesome community platform so especially seeing what's going on with social media and the ways in which it can be toxic and the ways in which it can uh i guess entrap people for lack of a better word so we're trying to provide an alternative to the time people spend chasing fame and money and trying to motivate them and tie their identity into the good that they do in the world. And I think we need a a massive societal shift to get there. And we're hoping to be a huge push to accomplish that.
1: Very interesting. Um, And and say say more about that, not tied to their, um, their data. Say more about that
2: yeah uh do, do you not you mean what, what we're doing with their with their data and stuff like that yeah yeah Or uh, yeah Just... yeah 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 so um with yeah so on the data side one of the things we're doing that i think is really important that i wish more social media companies did is not sell data um there's a there's a lot in there that i could talk about for ages because i used to work in cybersecurity and data privacy but i think that um much as much fun as personalized ads are and very helpful I've I've bought things from personalized ads um there is like basically no oversight on what is happening with people's data internationally and that is a challenge so at the very least as we grow our platform we are always keeping an eye on that from an ethics perspective from the perspective of what is best for the people who are using our website and for our ability to build a strong community in the future as opposed to getting revenue so i think that you know It's very easy to sell data because it's so valuable. And so if you're a for-profit company, one of the easiest ways to, um, I guess, turn a profit, to increase your stock value, to make your shareholders happy is to sell data. And so one of the reasons I'm grateful to be a nonprofit and so passionate about the community we're building is that we don't have those motivations. And we're excited to have ethical data privacy practices.
1: It's a huge problem, isn't it? I mean, I don't know, really, you know, our, our audience is a pretty broad audience and people, you know, in the public, um, you know, Facebook and and Google, just to name the two most egregious offenders are taking all of our data and using it to sell targeted ads and and the person we as individuals who are participating on those platforms. Are not compensated and we are not even informed. Um, When this is happening, and I know that there's some inherent ethical issues with that, Um, and that what you're creating is as a platform that will not do that. You will respect people's privacy and respect their data. Um, Do you have a plan then to compensate people in the future if they are participating in the website? I just wondered.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So, um what, we're we're probably going to be a free to use platform, meaning that we're not necessarily compensating the people who are using the platform. We're also not necessarily selling. We're not really making money off of the people who are on the platform. Um, but we do, yeah, we do want to compensate like our, our authors, our, our writers. So, in the long term, we are definitely looking at ways to, if we're able to raise that sort of revenue stream or donation stream, to have a lot of that go directly back to the people whose voices need uplifting and who are telling their story and all of that. Um, a lot of media companies today, even the biggest ones that you can think of, don't pay contributors, even though they're for profit, even though they're huge companies, even though they're asking experts in various industries to contribute their business knowledge or their. Um, their, you know, leadership knowledge are not, contri- are not paying contributors. And that, that to me is, is, um, shocking because they're for profits. And so well, presumably they're earning money and they could compensate, but yeah. I, you know, I also want to recognize that the media industry is a very challenging space right now. And so,
1: yeah, yeah, but there. it's inherently wrong, right? If you're not compensating someone for their work and especially creative work is often undervalued. So it's easier to get away with not paying those people. Um, i would love to dive a little bit deeper into the editorial side you were talking about personal stories from around the world so there's a true global international aspect to the content right and you also will have editors who will curate the content i know one of the problems with the web in general not just platforms and media but in general is that anyone can publish anything at any time and for, for users of the web and for platforms, it's very difficult to wade through everything and find those golden nuggets. And so you're going to have that. You're going to take care of that for us, right? Yeah. Um, well, I have to
2: shout out our editorial team there. They are just incredible from the top down, just incredible people. Um And I I really think that they have an amazing background to be able to tackle that, but they also just have amazing personal experiences that they bring to the table about storytelling, about effective storytelling. So we just have a very diverse international editorial team. We've been bringing in a lot of folks from around the whole world and I think that and when I say we I mean our human resources team we have an amazing director of uh, HR Michael Macias and and our COO Megan I always shout Megan out but um you know, she's just, they're incredible. And they've really built out a wonderful editorial team that is representative of the entire world. And I think the more that we can represent the world in our editorial team, the likelier we are to get stories that are powerful, that resonate with people, that are honest to the pe- and authentic to people's experiences because somebody on the team is aware of if that sounds right or not, to fact check them and then to get them out. And I think the other, the other thing is just the type of people you attract into the community in the first place. We have an amazing uh, sort of... Um, marketing editor person who, um, Giacomo Bertina, who's like, who sort of focuses to sort of build out a writer community and to think about what a writer community looks like, what types of people we're attracting, what stories do they want to tell, what voice do they feel has been squashed, what do they want to highlight in the world? And I think that is going to be a very powerful way to grow the types of content we're putting out.
1: That's really important. That's great. Um, you have every angle covered there. Um, if somebody wants to contribute or write, can they reach out on your website or after you launch yes. on February twenty first? Yes, yes,
2: yes, yes. Uh, they there. I think there's there's. Uh, you know, I like as I mentioned before we started, but to our audience as well, uh, the site is going through a lot of changes this week. But there is a submit place on the website. Hopefully, it's working and and active or feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. But yes, we are taking submissions already. We've actually been taking submissions for half a year or more at this point, just really collecting stories so that we have stuff come launch time and then absolutely we're going to have an open call when we launch and we are yeah there's a lot of stories out there people just want to tell that aren't going to get or aren't getting picked up by sort of the traditional news media because they aren't telling stories the way that people want to tell with the spins that they want to spin and with the profit motives that they may have or with the angle of storytelling they may want and i think that this is a great way great way to tell your story
1: yeah, it reminds me of um, World Pulse and their their private social network called PulseWire, which they created like 20 years ago before there were any private social networks. And I, I shout out to Jensina Larson, who's the founder of that. I actually know Alicia Fall and her many voices because of Jensina, so that's great. Um, yeah, both really. There, it's a profound, um, really important model, I think, that you're creating, um, and and especially in an age of propaganda, shall we say, right? Where a lot of media, traditional media, especially is, um, you know, cookie cutter, it's taken from a template somewhere, you know, everyone's saying the same thing. And a lot of the content, even if it's editorial, is really there to persuade you to do something or think about something, you know? Um, So there's an even greater need for it, I think now.
2: Yeah, you know, I love what you said about templatized writing because this is very true. If you go to a website or you watch TikTok parodies of news, which I love, Um, because I think they really call out some of the problems with news. They'll use like a news voice and you immediately know it's a news voice or they read it what an article would sound like on a major paper. And you're like, oh my God, that sounds like the news. Why does it sound like the news? And you're totally right. It's because the language itself is templatized. It's sort of like in the publishing industry, there are certain genres of books that all sound the same, not because all the writers want to write the same, but because all the editors and publishers want to publish the same thing because they know it sells. And that's a challenge because it literally takes away the voice of people who want to share their identity and their perspective in their own words. And it also takes away any cultural nuance if you don't want to speak like that. And it's a very, it's almost the equivalent of corporate speak in the news world. And it comes from a very traditional way of viewing the world that is very tied up in all these things that we're realizing only show one perspective of the world, whether it's rich people, whether it's a patriarchy, whether it's white people, right? The idea is these traditional bastions of power have controlled how we disseminate information. And whatever side of the aisle they're on, there is still a very standard way they communicate things. And I think that that itself is a challenge. So I love what you were talking about with templatized language, because that
1: is definitely a problem we're we're hoping not to have with our content. Absolutely. And you said, you said it's they're making those decisions because it sells, right? And it sounds like you're taking that out of the equation, right? You're not needing to publish things because they're gonna sell. Um, you know, you're giving you're going to have the freedom and the freedom um, with your authors as well to publish what really matters and not do it commercial value, right? Um, yeah. just because something will sell or you know that's not necessarily the best reason to do it knowing of course we all have to pay the bills <laughs> but but you know I love that you're you have that freedom right
2: yeah yeah no and, and I I think that this is actually a big reason we are nonprofit and not for-profit even as a social enterprise or a, or a sort of Uh, Any sort of stock based company, Um, although there are definitely ways to create companies that are more ethical and that give back to the community and there are definitely unethical ways to create nonprofits. There are so many nonprofits out there who are doing all sorts of terrible things, but. Um, one of the reasons it's great to be a non-profit is, like you said, right, we can we have the freedom to explore how we want to create this. We aren't going to have a for-profit motive. Another thing is that our leadership, all of whom is incredible and in donating a ton of their time and value to this organization, are not here to become rich. We know, like, I'm never going to be a millionaire off of this org, let alone a billionaire. And if you are looking to be a billionaire in the news or a billionaire, a social media billionaire, then, of course, you're going to sell ads and sell data and find every way to get a profit, because end of the day, what we're realizing as a market today is that it is hard to turn a profit in social media or media. The money just isn't there. And so it is a very complex scheme of of how you operate, what you sell, how stocks work. And still, these big companies, Facebook, Twitter, New York Times are losing money. And so taking that out of the equation definitely gives us a lot of freedom to produce something of great value and hopefully be sustainable as well.
1: Yeah, the advertising world is upside down and inside out, right? It's just a complete disaster. Uh, throughout the 90s, I worked for Corporate America and was worked for Time Warner and Gannett and some big magazines. And, and then for the last 19 years, I've owned my own magazine. And we were very much reliant on advertising for many years. Um, but the switch to digital uh, really upset the apple cart. And now all the social media has upset the apple cart. And you probably know about Section 230 and how the laws have not kept up with digital advertising or anything in the digital world, really.
2: Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, the challenge, um, there's two challenges with why the laws haven't kept up with digital advertising. One is Congress and general state legislatures, et cetera, in the United States are too old. Actually, there's many reasons, but we'll start there. And then the is that the world takes its cue from the United States. Right. So when we look at digital advertising and digital privacy, luckily in recent years, there has been separate pushes from Europe to do to sort of have different ways of looking at data and privacy, but because all the early stage companies have really come out of. Yeah, a couple blocks down here in California, this is really the way that social media companies have wanted to shape the market and the way that digital advertisers have wanted to shape the market has really gone the way that they wanted to, because they hold so much power. And because people in politics around the world don't necessarily understand what is going on. And then another reason just to lightly touch on it, is that it is not in the national security interests of most countries to not collect data, right? So they're always asking for backdoors. They're always asking for data. They're always asking to collect. And so you can't have it both ways. Either you care about citizen privacy or you don't.
1: Now we're getting into the deep stuff and I love it. <laughs> not that the editorial is not important, but your business model inherently is respectful of everyone, all stakeholders right you're not taking advantage of anyone and and what you're talking about is you know the pressure for social media companies to provide private data to the nsa right through google and facebook and all these companies i'm just calling it like it is right (laughs) Yeah, and yeah. and um, you know Edward Snowden's the one who outed that that whole thing, and it was part of the Patriot Act and I you know other things in there. But say more about that. I mean, it's it's so very important for us as individuals to be aware of this situation, and also that there's going to be solutions like yours where that's not going to happen.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, there's so much I can say about that, but I will say that like a lot of it, I know a lot of it has been said and I am grateful for the debate that's gone on. Two things I think of note, given my pers- like sort of experiences and perspectives in this space. Um, one is that I can't believe it's gone away. The vast majority of people do not care. They do not remember that this this is out there. They don't care that their phones are being tapped or that their data is being used or that the location data is being used because people get used to anything. And we see that because, um, you know, there there are surveillance states in the world and the people living under them get so used to that level of surveillance that they do not even fundamentally understand the freedoms that they have sacrificed to live in a surveillance state, nor do they even recognize how necessarily like claustrophobic they feel until they leave. And there's been a lot of talk about this from people who leave surveillance states like Russia or China and how they feel when they're in a freer society. Right. But since the majority of the world has just learned learned about you know, the things that Snowden shared or, or learned about, you know, sort of what is happening and then went shrug. And I'm very confused why we all went shrug, but, you know, most people don't know about it. Most people don't care about it. It somehow didn't make it through the next generations, like education, like it's not being taught properly in schools. It's not like people aren't really aware of how their data works, where it's out there, under what circumstances the government can use it. Why specifically in the United States, we do not want to authorize general warrants. Right. Like it's literally Fourth Amendment of the Constitution is so dead. So that's one, one large issue. There just isn't enough awareness and enough people aren't talking about it. And then secondly, this is very niche, but I think a problem is that lawyers in the government are often told that their client is the agency and not the American people or the US constitution. And their client should be the American people or the US constitution. So if something does not, you know, uh, is not in accordance with the fourth amendment or does not actually support the interests of the US people, they should say no. They should not be trying their best way to say yes, depending on the agency's needs. Their client is not the agency. And too many attorneys in the federal government of the United States think their client is the agency and not the people.
1: And that's what they're told, and they feel like their hands are tied, right? Which is probably okay. why left. <laughs> yeah,
2: uh, you left. Yeah, no, know, actually, there's there's a lot of reasons why I transitioned out. But I actually greatly enjoyed the job that I had when I left. I was working, um, I was working for an independent commission that had been stood up at the end of the Obama administration, but operated through the early Trump administration about encouraging people to be more active in public service, national service, just sort of getting people out there and and, and doing more in their communities. Um, Military as well. But luckily, that was not something I had to specifically focus on. But, you know, we were just thinking about ways to encourage people to serve. Why aren't people serving? Why don't people care about the government? Why are people disliking the US? How can we make this better? How can we educate people? How do we have better civic education in schools? which I think was fascinating. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of things from that workplace that I greatly appreciated and enjoyed, including a lot of flexibility and recognition of different needs that people had in the office place. So I have no complaints about working at the National Commission on Service uh, when I did. But yeah, I I think I would struggle with going back into sort of more traditional national security as an attorney. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm.
1: Um, Here's a data privacy question. Um, About many years ago, two thousand. Seven, I launched a magazine about location data. It was called LBX Journal, LB being location based, to the X being the algebraic variable for how businesses use location in their businesses, right? It could be Mm -hmm. supply chain, it could be targeted marketing, right? And that's when I learned about everything that we're talking about about privacy and that we're being tracked on our phones and everybody, you know, people know my location. Even if I turn off my location, that they can still find me through the on triangulation and other ways. Um, so here's my question. Here's what everyone always asks <clears throat> or they say, I'm not doing anything wrong. So why should I care that people are tracking me?
2: Yeah. So Snowden has a great response to this actually, which I think everyone should know, Just um, saying that I don't care about privacy because I have nothing to hide. is like saying I don't care about freedom of speech because I have nothing to say it's absurd it's just absurd um also just because you don't care about privacy doesn't mean other people don't care about privacy and believe me at some point you will care about privacy i don't think there's anyone on planet earth today who in who operates okay there's probably a few people i shouldn't say literally anyone but who operates in the modern world and is aware of the impact social media and airing out everything that you've done on media can have to your real life and real career and does not care about privacy because everyone has said something they do not want blasted on the front page of the new york times and a lack of privacy would mean absolutely anything you've ever done the worst photos uh your phone taking a picture of you when you are naked in the bathroom any of that can go out there right so everybody cares about it to some extent um what they're really saying is that when they say that is i trust the government not to come after me if i haven't done anything wrong and so i try i feel secure vis-a-vis the government specifically tracking my data These people, by the way, usually care a lot about companies tracking their data. Now, I care a lot more about what the government does than what companies do for various reasons, but starting with companies don't have a private military. But um, any brown or black person who has faced unfair criminal justice system repercussions or national security repercussions, right? Like I'm always pulled for screening at the airport understands fundamentally why that is not a solid argument and why you cannot trust the government to do to just accurately use your data so that if you are innocent, you are not going to suffer. That is just completely untrue. I was just reading yesterday about how last year, uh, the more than 1,000 people in the United States have been killed by police in the last year, which is the highest, it's like 1,100 and something, more than any other year uh, since tracking started. And this is very common. And the police are absolutely losing data on your phones. They absolutely go after innocent people. So does the government, right? So even if you have done nothing wrong, That does not mean that uh, you are not going to get caught in dragnet surveillance. And then separately from that, even if you have done something wrong, if you live in a functional society, it is very important that you have a functional justice system. Just because you've done something wrong does not mean that you cede your right to privacy, your right to only be searched if there's a legal specific warrant. and that that data has to be obtained lawfully and legally. If that doesn't happen, then you end up with a police state, which I would argue we have in many ways, and you end up with consistent and constant fear in underprivileged members of society, especially Black people who are continually targeted by this sort of surveillance. So, anyway, end rant. Um, but uh, but I'm glad you asked. You know, it's it, it's a challenge debating those issues with folks. But you know, it's you do care about privacy. I've yet to meet someone who does not care about privacy.
1: That is a really beautiful response to that question and uh, multi-layered and really important. And, um, you know, you, it brings up, do, who do we trust? Right. Can we really trust the government? Do we trust companies? You know, do we trust, uh, we have to think about these things, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I also think we need to make sure that no matter who we trust, we are capable of questioning that trust in the light of new evidence. So everybody has to make assumptions and stereotypes in some ways to move through the world. Every time you put your foot down on the ground, you are assuming it's not gonna break, even though you know a certain percentage of floors are weak. But you have to be able to, to fix that in the light of new evidence. If you see a broken floor and you've fallen down two times, you don't say, I'm not going to put a board across. I'm confident the board is going to be fine. And we've routinely seen people do the equivalent of that recently with news. And so uh, for me, I always ask people entering into any debate, what information, if it were true, would change your opinion on this? And if the answer is nothing, that's not an opinion you can debate. That's somebody who has been brainwashed and you can't debate them because there is no set of facts
1: that would change their mind. Yeah, yeah, we have to remain... Um, discerning and able to, to question everything really. And, yeah. and when you drill down the truth matters, right? It should, it should matter. <laughs> it should, yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, well, that's really, really interesting. And I'm really excited about your organization. Um, I'm going to see if I'm, oh, I want to dive a little bit further about the users and um, so there is a, this is not a content creation platform where anybody can just put anything out there, right? As a user, let's say I'm a reader. I think of your organization as more of traditional media with writers and readers, right? And typically the readers are not creating their own content. Can you share more about that and then how
2: that happens yeah, to you? Yeah, so um, I, I think of our organization as sort of the next in a line of revolutionary media orgs that have done something beyond media, sort of media plus. So I think of BuzzFeed as an org like this, started a long time ago, created both new media content and also a community space that was at the time very revolutionary and unusual right we have medium which is sort of in this space as well where it is kind of like traditional magazines and there are parts of it that are editorial but a lot of it is open and it's sort of in that space between traditional media and social media and so the sentinel the dg sentinel is much the same way right like we're in in that space between traditional media and social media so we do have the editorial side and you are right that people who are logging into our website aren't going to be able to write their own long form articles and share them, right? But we do have a community space as well where people can put their thoughts, their comments, their posts in response to some of the topics that we're creating and discussing. There is sort of that feed-like element, that community element. And we are exploring from the ground up as we create that space, how do we reward people for meaningful conversation, meaningful commenting on our articles, meaningful thoughts in our space, and interaction with other people as opposed to a desire to get the most likes and the most clicks and to build an audience because we're definitely not, you're like you're saying, we're not a content creator platform, we're not an audience building platform. But I think the other the other thing I want to point is it's not necessarily that this doesn't exist on some social platforms, Tumblr and Reddit come to mind, right? There really aren't Tumblr influencers and Reddit influencers. And it's just sort of a sense in like what the platform prioritizes and how it rewards those connections between people and those conversations between people, as opposed to rewarding the ability to create viral content and then follow an individual person. And that's how you start rewarding the more and more outre expressions of, like, uh, like, so, for example, on TikTok, right, like, food waste is a big thing, because people, when they make large batches of food, go more viral, because it's very engaging, and you can't draw your eyes off from it, and so, when you're trying to create a site that doesn't reward that, you have to think from the beginning, how are you tying up people's identity to the qualitative contributions that they make to this community, the way they're strengthening the community, and social bonds, instead of, watching that number tick up and getting addicted to like notifications on number of followers and number of likes and it's a very human thing i don't think there's anything wrong with the users by the way these companies are literally hiring psychologists to get you addicted to the platform so not blaming literally any influencer or any user of these media platforms everybody
1: has to find their way
2: in the world yeah. um but the companies, the companies have a different focus than we do and so they're going to reward different behavior
1: Right, right, right. And it's, it's not necessarily good for the user, but it is psychology, right? It's a basic right, Right, of-
2: exactly. And so we want to do the same thing where we're sort of being like, hey, instead of caring about that, can we get you to care about your impact on the world? Can we get you to care about community and social bonds? And in the long term, by the way, that makes people way happier. There's so much research to show that people who are purpose driven, who find purpose in their life, people who find a community that they can uh, accomplish things with and change the world with are way happier than people who are merely watching a bank account or, or follower number tick up, right? Like, so it's sort of changing this, like I said, this huge societal shift fighting against the past several decades of capitalism and consumerism being spread as the cultural paragon. And
1: that's going to be a challenge, but.
2: It's a
1: I love it. You're audacious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, I'm ex- I'm excited to get involved myself. So your user readers will be part because they can interact with the, the writers and the content and each other, right? And that's the part about the community itself. You'll have a creative writing community and that's more for the writers. And then will it be separate to have the uh, readers, so to speak?
2: Um, do you mean like a separate reader community or?
1: Um, yeah. So people are.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: How Sorry. will that I'm work? Fine. Will there be different communities or is it all one big one?
2: yeah so sort of all one big platform and one big community but there are special they're going to be sort of badges for our writers one of the one of the other things i want to highlight is that you know we want to protect our writers so we um you know we want people to feel like this is a safe space and that is an overused phrase but genuinely a place where they can be who they are without being attacked without feeling like they cannot express themselves without feeling like this is going to be something that is going to bring them any trauma, discomfort or unhappiness as opposed to a healthy community. So while we will have like a blurred community and we're definitely you know looking for a lot of engagement across the board, in some ways we are looking at ways to protect our writers. Potentially they can be a little bit more in control of the types of comments that are on their articles or if they wanna interact with certain types of people um, because we want them to feel protected because we are going out there and asking normal people, not professional writers, not professional journalists to share their story. And to share a very personal, private and, and, and touching story about their life. And they don't want most people rationally, normally, emotionally, just like obviously don't want to go out there, share that story and then get trolled. So we, we really do care about making sure it's a comfortable space for them and their article, but it is going to be an open community. Let me quickly um, plug my computer in. I'm right here though. Um, I'm just dying on the battery front.
1: Sure. My next question what 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 are the stories going to be about you know you say very personal is it yeah what are, what's the topics
2: yeah so we have a bunch of different um bunch of different areas that we cover um we have lifestyle and relationships um we have a section called writer tomorrow where we're featuring people who are doing good in the world we have fiction those sections are sort of led by daphne castrell who's an incredible editor writer and just amazing, uh, amazing person. She's sort of the deputy managing editor. All sections have their own leads, have their own, have their own stuff going on. We have science and health section, uh, science and tech section, health's been moved to lifestyle relationships, but science and tech section um, led by Erin Kennedy. She's awesome. She has such an incredible background in science and the intersection between science and identity. Um, We have a career and business section led by Lukeman. He's again, incredible, has such a great background in writing and and, in Business and in business in countries, inter- international countries, and different markets around the world. Um, and then our two flagship sections are really mental health and um, and humanity. And those sections, um, led by Emily Blake, Sam Off-Lowen, um, are our goal there is to really raise awareness of these very important issues that are that are. Uh, growing right now mental health obviously because I think that impacts the way we live our lives and a lot of stories have to do with our own mental state and our own mental balance and humanity or politics because what is happening around the world in countries that aren't typically covered by the media is so freaking important it makes my blood boil that everybody cares about what happens to one or two families in countries like the UK or the United States and then things can affect 300 like thousand people in another country and we just ignore ignore what happens so I think those are very powerful sections for us and we just brought on a few new editors into our unbreaking the news section. Um, our deputy CMO, Steve Jones, came up with that. And I just love it because you know how everything in, in popular culture today is breaking news, breaking news, breaking news, but it's not really breaking news. So he came up with this phrase, unbreaking the news, which I love. And so they're focusing on stories that are, you know, ripe for publication, that are reacting to real world events. But um Really covering them in a unique way, covering them from people on the ground, authentically covering them, stop sensationalizing everything, things like that.
1: Amazing. So that's a lot of different topics and the flagships being mental health and humanity. Is it true that the other topics are sort of addressed through those lenses?
2: no they're not so each section is independently led by a lead editor deputy editor and assistant and junior editors those lead editors then um, work with their deputy managing editor or the managing editor creative managing editor and the editor-in-chief to sort of play around with our sections. I would say the common thread among everything is that they're all personal stories. If you don't, why are you the person to tell this story? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, I am a nurse and this is my advice about having a career in this field or I am on the ground in this country experiencing this. Um, There was a shooting in my hometown. This is what is going on in my head. I am living through the coup in Myanmar. I was a student affected by the crisis in Nigeria. And I think that is really important because Mm -hmm. when you fly in journalists, to point at people behind you it is not only denigrating to the people behind. i've watched so many documentaries on india for example where people are pointing behind and being like these people in the slums of bombay uh, right like it's not it's very denigrating you know right people aren't animals it's not a nature documentary honestly i think the way we treat animals in nature documentaries is bad enough um and and so it's denigrating but then it's also inaccurate You know, you're getting a very inaccurate picture of what things are actually like. I don't, I've, I've yet to watch a documentary where there isn't a clear bias that they, that the documentary makers want to convey. Um, I think if everybody realized that documentaries are actually movies, they're just a genre of fiction film, it would be, (laughs) it would be a lot better. But I think that's what we're trying to avoid, where we're like, hey, we're not flying in someone to paint a picture of India's slums or
1: something like that. We're asking real people who live in real countries what their lives are like. Right. And the reason documentaries are just movies is because directors and all of us, including you and I, are inherently limited by our own life experience. Right. Mm -hmm. Our our life experience, it goes into everything we do. And what you're saying is with the personal stories to actually take advantage of that, shine a light on that, make that a good thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, instead exactly. Of pretending, instead of pretending we can see everything uh completely neutrally or objectively, because we're it's all subjective actually.
2: Yeah, and I think the other thing is just like it doesn't have to be your truth for it to be someone else's truth. And I wish we lived in exactly. a world where people were more understanding of that. And I hope that we're able to affect that because this is someone's truth. This is their story. I'm not agree with the, that's not how you may have reacted to those events, but it is their story.
1: such an important way to look at the word truth and and what that really means um yeah it's a reminder to myself too you know um so we have a few questions for you um let's have the one from from laura yeah here we go Laura, do you moderate your public forum space or publish community agreements to keep the debate civil or use other approaches
2: my god so we just had a brainstorming session on moderation yesterday which was incredible um megan came up with these incredible questions to guide the conversation and folks had so many amazing ideas so we're not quite ready to completely be like we're literally just working on this now so we're not in a position to be completely public about where we are at with moderation or how we're structuring it but absolutely we are working on ways to make sure the community has ways to keep the discourse civil um they have guides of the community to keep parameters within certain bounds we're really really exploring ways to make sure that the community is functioning and is yeah it's just it's functioning is healthy is a safe space for people to to what they want to say without feeling like they're going to be personally attacked we want to make sure that there is freedom to say things and to explore things but that we are creating a civil place so absolutely there will be moderation. I also want to point out there are a lot of sites these days that claim they never moderate. And that's not true because if you don't moderate a site, like even unmoderated sites, if you don't moderate, they will be 100 percent spam and porn. So any site that says they're not moderating or that they're truly free is just, you know, every site is gonna has to moderate to some extent, even to just keep out spam and, and illegal things, if nothing else.
1: So how is the launch gonna roll out? I have February 21st down and um How does the, how will the launch happen?
2: yeah, it's a great question. So, um, like any uh, startup ish thing, uh, everything is a mess last minute, and everything isn't perfect, but it's good enough, and then we keep growing and we keep making it better with every iteration. So uh, February is really a beta launch. We're rolling out an initial platform initial article so people can check it out. People can see what we're doing. They can log in, they can give us feedback, Growing a slow and steady community of early adopters who can give us quality feedback and who are helping build literally the culture and the attitude and the the space that we're in and what we want it to look like. And then as we grow with those early adopters, creating those parameters and creating the feel of the space, um, then we're going to be heading into a lot of marketing and a lot of out uh, community uh, community media outreach and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of um, we have an incredible advisory board and board that I think is going to help a ton in outreach and in getting the word out there and in shaping the community we want to build. So I'm really, really excited to you know, announce our board and and share that with folks and and get everyone, get everyone involved.
1: That's great. Um, The website was posted here a moment ago, but for those of you who are just listening, it's dgsentinel.org, D-S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L.org. And what's the DG stand for?
2: The DG stands for do good. Um, one of our so our, our insofar as a nonprofit can have a parent org, we have a parent org, creeps global, which is the nonprofit I mentioned a bit at the beginning, we provide free mentorship to folks around the world, those in need, and it has built a very strong community and we used a lot of Dweeps Global's resources early on to get started. And so, uh, you know, it's sort of homage to that, but the DG actually stands for do good. Uh, the, and our tagline is do good, do well, and um, yeah. So that's what the DG stands for. And definitely doing good is a huge part of what we're we're trying to promote, what we're trying to get people to do
1: and the media organization we're trying to build. So Dweebs Global is uh dweebsglobal.org as well. And it's a mentorship program.
2: Yes. Yeah, so we provide we provide free one-on-one support, mentorship support, mental health support to people in need around the world. We started uh at the early days of the pandemic. and but like back when people thought the pandemic was going to be a two-week thing and we just wanted to help a few people before folks got to go back to work. And I had offered my services along with my co-founders, Janani Mohan and Nathan Maranway to um basically offer our help if people wanted help be like finding a way to get into law school or just somebody to talk to a shoulder to cry on resume edit and a whole bunch of people joined us to help us help other people and it it literally sort of went viral. It grew to hundreds of mentors in just a couple months and it's been really wonderful to be able to have that to work on as well. And it's actually where are some of the ideas for our community and our initiatives at the Sentinel came from? Because we have seen proof of concept sort of at Thweeps Global, being able to connect people together from around the world who then get passionate about some issue that they want to solve and create teams to solve that with other folks around the world. And so that is what we're taking that idea and scaling it publicly with the Sentinel, as well as having this great editorial side. But we've definitely been able to already build that and seen great success at Thweeps Global internally. So They're very much sister orgs in some ways, and I'm very proud to be part of both of them.
1: You are really building community in many ways and impacting the world in many ways. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yes. Is there anything else that we did not talk about that you'd like to share? And then we'll have just a couple more questions before we wrap up yeah
2: of course um, you know I never shout out everyone whom I want to shout out so just in general like the Sentinel and Weeps Global are full of incredible incredible people and none of this would be possible without all of them I think it is a huge failure of modern society that leaders get too much credit for everything and they're always the one people want to talk to and they are out there and actually ironically people at both orgs don't really like to do this it's it's actually a, a stress for me too it's definitely not my, my MO but um, I you know, I really like, um, I, I really like shouting out everyone because this wouldn't be possible without everyone. Literally, somebody came up with the idea of getting everyone on Slack and get building the community. Uh, the Sentinel literally wouldn't be possible without Megan Miller. Like she it built, helped build this community from scratch, um, you know, uh, and everybody who's joined along the way, Jordan, our editor in chief, our whole editorial team, our, our CTO, Chris Jones, incredible people across the board. And would not be possible without everyone. So I couldn't shout out everyone, but I do want to shout out in general that I keep trying to hit different people every time I get on this. And I hope eventually I hit everyone. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of, that's always sort of the thing I want to say whenever I have extra time. So thank you for, thank you for letting me shout everyone out.
1: Absolutely. That's important. And, uh, you know, you can't do it without them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, It's, it's not just my baby. It's sort of all of our, all of our thing. Yeah. We have a quick question here. When your company's up and running, will
2: you take college interns? Yes. So we actually have had a very amazing intern program at Dweeps Global before, and we do have a couple interns at the Sentinel. I frequently work with my alma mater, Georgetown, to get interns and to you know, we sort of like the college either they get credits or they're getting paid from the college and they work with us. I absolutely love working with interns. We have really great ways to engage them, to really give them opportunities to explore what a career in a field will actually look like, which I think is amazing. And um, we bring in speakers and we have resume training and interviews and it's just, it's something I absolutely love. So yes, we will definitely have an intern program at the Sentinel, we have one at at Global.
1: Great, great. That's awesome. So our last question is going to be about this other topic about the universe and the nature of the universe. So this is a question from Deborah Burgess. As a physicist, I wonder if you think that there may be a possibility of other life forms in the universe. Yeah, possibility, yes. Certainty, no. Um, so yeah, you know, it's just fascinating. I can literally
2: talk about this for for hours. I do want to also shout out that like I was in physics for a while. I was not exactly a physicist in that. I I don't know what the word means. Well, I did not have a career in it. I researched a lot in it, graduated, went to law school, became a lawyer happen but um yeah you know it's no but you know it's it's a fascinating question what the word means so I'm I'm happy I'll take it but um but yeah okay so there's you know I find the whole life forms in the universe very very fascinating it's not an area I worked in but it's an area that I think is just fascinating right because are we are we alone uh do we want to be alone what does it mean if we're alone there's so many theories out there that I think are fantastic um and that explain why, you know, why the odds of, of life forms in the universe could potentially be low. I guarantee you that, or I, I I would think that there is life in the universe 100% outside of Earth, because there is water elsewhere, and there are probably life forms. But um, whether or not there's intelligent life is the really interesting question, whether there's life that's going to create radio signals, that's going to do interstellar space exploration, or whether there's even going to be vertebrates, um, and whether there's life form that's like us. And that is fascinating. We are actually a real relatively early stage universe in some ways. So it is quite possible that in this area of the neck, in this neck of the woods, as far as we're gonna be able to explore in a realistic lifespan of humankind, uh that we won't run into anyone because we're rather early we're rather well developed we were very you know if you just think about the difference between humans and our ability to explore the universe and the next animal and their ability to explore the universe just on earth there's a huge gap there and so it's always possible that there are planets out there with a significant amount of life that just aren't going to be able to uh let us know they're there in any in any way um And then I'll leave you with the theory that I have been finding very exciting lately, which is that there are not only many universes, but that this entire universe is a simulation of a higher order life form, which I think is fascinating. So basically imagine we get to be super, super powered and we get to be able to tap the energy of stars or just in general, generate a lot of energy. And what we do in our free time as a very advanced life form, a few thousand years in the future is create simulations. And this entities in a simulation would not necessarily know that they're in a simulation. Um, and uh, we just do that. We create simulations like us. We they create simulations when they get more advanced and you sort of have N order universes and we aren't N zero. So that is always a fascinating theory that I like to think about and explore. Um, and the universe is pixelated. Look it up. So that's fascinating theory. There's but- a little
1: nod, little nod to the matrix there. Uh-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So it would be, it would be sort of different from the matrix, but, but yeah, but yeah, it's a very fascinating theory folks are folks are exploring. I, I love these conversations. This is not the area I worked in. I am no smarter, more educated than any, any other pop scientist on this, on this topic. This is not my area of expertise, but I, I do love thinking about it. So I appreciate the question.
1: Well, we're all, we're all energy, right? Everything is energy. As you were talking about the electromagnetic field right. Everything is energy. and, and, So I personally love that. And I honestly feel really grateful and lucky to be alive today, right, in the world. You kind of indicated something about that, you know, where we are in the world today. Um, I feel very lucky to be alive and grateful to have interviewed you. Thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you
2: for having me. I really appreciate it. So kind of you. Really wonderful conversation and a wonderful organization that you've created and are, are promoting as well. So
1: very, very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. And keep up the amazing work. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Thank
0: you.